Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a middle grade novel due out in May. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider how one book handles the big, big questions in life. We're talking questions like, what gives life meaning? And what do we do with regret? And how to find hope when we're feeling hopeless? The book that handles these big questions is The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Matt Haig is an author for children and adults. His memoir, Reasons to Stay Alive, was a number one bestseller. His children's book, A Boy Called Christmas, was a runaway hit and is translated in over 40 languages. It's being made into a film starring Maggie Smith, Sally Hawkins, and Jim Broadbent, and The Guardian called it an instant classic. I cannot wait to see that movie. I know. I just have to me interrupt too, you. Me too, Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I love Maggie <laughs> Smith and Sally Hawkins. He has sold over 3 million books worldwide. The Midnight Library is his most recent book, and it was a New York Times bestseller and winner of the Goodreads Choice Award for Fiction, and it was a Good Morning America book club pick. It's a really fascinating concept, this book. It takes place in a world where there's a library that exists between life and death, and every book represents a life you could have led had you made different choices. And so the main character, Nora, she tries to commit suicide because she feels like there's nothing about her life that makes it worth living. And then she arrives in this library and gets to try out as many of these alternate lives as she wants to, to see if she would have been happier with one of these other lives, which is such a seductive idea, (laughs) right? I I mean, who hasn't wondered, what would my life have been like if only I had X or Y or Z? Yes. And one other element in the book is that the library contains a book of regrets, which is one book that with every regret you've ever had, and it's an unbearable book to read, as you can surely imagine, every regret in one book. The Midnight Library brings up so much to talk about. Matt has said that it's his favorite of all the books he's written, and we started our interview by asking him why. I think The Midnight Library, in terms of my fiction, certainly, is the one where the theme and the plot and the character, you don't have to pendulum between them. It's kind of all the same thing. When I got the idea of The Midnight Library, I thought, well, that is the concept itself. That is also the title itself. That is also part of the character itself and the theme of regret and everything. But also in the other sense of being able to talk about mental health in a fictional way, because I'd written before this a kind of memoir called Reasons to Stay Alive that explored my mental health in nonfiction before. I'd never done it in fiction. It's felt in a very strange way that I could almost be more real and certainly freer doing it in fiction. Yeah, it's so interesting, this challenge of how much distance you need for your character. Um, And you also said that you wanted this book to be sentimental but earned. And I'm curious to know a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, I think because I'm British and Britain is 
such a country that is suspicious of any kind of sentimentality or optimism. <laughs> and I've had this a, a bit, you know, with critics here. Certain people are very keen to dismiss me if uh, I've got even approaching a happy ending or an optimistic outlook or something too accessible or sentimental. I used to be almost the opposite of who I am now. I used to be a very cynical person, a very pessimistic person. I had suicidal depression for three years. The predominant feature of that obviously is a deep, deep pessimism, a total conviction that everything is going to be terrible in your own life and elsewhere. It was my recovery from depression that made me embrace a, a different side of myself because I realized that everything I'd been telling myself for the last three years had kind of been a lie, you know, a lot of the pessimism I'd had in my head, a kind of defensive pessimism that had run away with itself. I had just been wrong. You know, I was convinced I wouldn't be alive at 25. I lived to be 25. I was convinced my relationship fell, it didn't fail. And obviously in life, bad things happen, terrible things happen. We know this these last two years more than any other time. Yet this view, worldview that depression gave me, that everything, everything was doomed to failure. Everything was catastrophe. You know, that had been as false as the falsest kind of sentimental optimism out there. And so I worked hard after that point, after sort of properly recovering, to change my perspective and to sort of embrace the sentimental, the hopeful, the optimistic side of life, but not in terms of some sort of like unicorns and rainbow, unrealistic way, to actually a kind of radical optimism or a radical sentimentality of truthfulness and yes occasionally you know I occasionally get a bit mocked for it or something by very cynical literary types in Britain but I feel like you if you're doing anything out of authenticity or because you're feeling it and you're not being cynical about it you're putting it out there because it's a part of you and you believe in it then people can't really touch that or take that away. I think I discovered who I was as a writer a few books ago where I, I, I realized that if you're actually putting something out into the world, you know, there's not a, an immediate shortage of books. So if you're going to be arrogant and self-indulgent enough to put a book out there like I have been, then at least make it have some kind of, if not use, some sort of hopeful quality to it that is kind of authentic. You know, my first three novels, which I doubt you or any Americans have actually read, but they were deeply pessimistic. And I thought the only way to be a true sort of literary writer was to sort of like have everyone die. and So dark, yeah. Yeah, literally nothing, you know, alternative universe where nothing good ever happens. And that's not life. Life is, you know, you'll see a baby or a puppy and the sentimentality you feel won't be fake. You'll actually have those feelings or, or you'll have them stirred up. I don't know if you're listening to Hold On by Wilson Phillips or something. That's a real feeling that you're feeling. And why have books got to be immune to that side of life to, to be taken seriously or whatever? Um, I don't suffer from depression, but I suffer from a good deal of anxiety. And I also have had to struggle to try to overcome pessimism and embrace optimism. And one thing that I realize is part of it, and I wonder whether you experience this too, is this notion that if you're focused on the pessimistic outcome and worrying about it, somehow you're able to control and prepare for it. And if you stop worrying about it, then you're not guiding it in any way. You have no control over it. And so the struggle is to realize that, of course, you have no control whether you're worrying yeah. or not. You might as well not. 
Is that a component of depression as well or, uh, or your experience, I should just say? Yeah, obviously we were given emotions like anxiety initially in evolutionary terms for survival. We still have a wiring which makes us anxious. So as a naturally anxious person, which I am, when I'm being optimistic, it's not because I necessarily find that an easy state of mind, but as a sort of necessary counterbalance or something that I have to mindfully work on to get there. So often, like, I'll write a book about regrets, not because I don't have regrets, but because I have a lot of regrets. And I'm trying to write the book as sort of self-therapy for myself. So even though my nonfiction books are often bundled in the self-help section, certainly in England they are, I don't really see them as self-help because I definitely don't see myself as an author with all the answers or who is sitting on the mountaintop in a state of enlightenment after having figured all of life out. I see my job as a writer is more like questioning things, working through my own anxieties, having a few answers here and there, but having more questions and unsolved things. Yeah. Um, So you were just talking a little while ago about finding a feeling of being worthwhile, that life is worthwhile and the futility of regret, which is a lot easier when you're not in the depths of depression. Can you talk about that space and what can be done to kind of hold on to uh, a feeling that life is worthwhile, for example, while you're really in the depths of depression? So a key important thing is to realize that when you're in those states, that you're not alone. You're in this sort of horrible new land, but it's a new land with a sort of population of millions and millions go through these things and survive these things. And it's about narratives that we have. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important, even in depression, to try and understand how positively uncertain things are. Like, I mean, you might have a chronic mental health condition that in one sense isn't going to change. You might continually be prone to depression throughout your life. But what can change is responses and attitudes and lifestyle and how you understand it and how you stigmatize or don't stigmatize yourself. So even within any situation, there's always a degree of choice. There's always a degree of change. And what I didn't understand at the age of 24 is that I would actually become a different person. I'm still the same person in some ways, still got the same name. I've still got the same memories of being a child and stuff. But in many other ways, I'm actually a different person. But the hardest question I ever got at a a live event on the topic of mental health, because it was about one of my non-fictional mental health books, the hardest question I got was, well, it was okay for you in a way, because, you know, you you had the privilege of being in a relationship when you were ill. You had Mm -hmm. kind of you know, stereotypically liberal, open-minded, middle-class parents who were okay that you could talk to about depression and you had somewhere to go. In one sense, you were kind of staying alive because of other people. And what would you say to somebody who had no one, who felt like they had no one in the world? How would you keep that person in the world if they felt like they had nothing and no one? And in a way, the answer is, is kind of the same. You stay alive for other people, but they're not necessarily other people external to you. They're other versions of you. There are other versions of yourself in the future that are very grateful that you held on long enough to survive because none of us are the same person we were 10 years ago. None of us could foresee everything that happened to us in the last decade or two decades or three decades. I certainly know from my own life that often 
the very worst experiences or worst times of my life have in the long run led to all kinds of unforeseen positive things that I could not have predicted from that low point. So it's not so much even a case of hold on for the better times. It's sometimes a case that actually those bad times are horrendous to live through, but they have something for the future that's essential that we don't see at the time. We wouldn't have a concept of happiness without a concept of sadness. We wouldn't have a concept of light without dark. And but our cliche about, you know, we need the dark for the stars to shine. So yeah, there's my long-winded therapy session. <laughs> I love those ideas <laughs> that you stay alive for future you and that the horrific experience will somehow be useful to you or enriching to you in some way, some yeah. unknown way now, later. Um, I've suffered from depression for most of my life. I've had a few big depressive episodes starting when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And what amazes me, I mean, I suppose, you know, everyone's different, but what amazes me is the sameness of it. You know, when people describe what it's like yeah. to feel depressed, what you're saying, I'm sitting and nodding and going, oh yeah, that's just how I felt. You know, <laughs> yeah. that is reassuring. And depression does lie and tell you that there is no future. And, and, and having those things to repeat to yourself is really, really helpful. Matt's own dark times gave him so many deep insights that he has shared so widely, which I think really supports his point, right? That dark times have something for the future that we don't see at the time. Yeah. And that reminds me of one of the quotes that I loved from the Midnight Library, and there are so many quotes that I love. This one is, while we are alive, we always contain a future of multifarious possibility. So let's be kind to the people in our own existence. Let's occasionally look up from the spot in which we are, because wherever we happen to be standing, the sky above goes on forever. Yesterday, I knew I had no future and that it was impossible for me to accept my life as it is now. And yet today, that same messy life seems full of hope, potential. The impossible, I suppose, happens via living. Ah. He's so right. We can never, ever predict our own futures. And it's so important to remember that because depression is fantastic at lying. Depression tells you all is lost, all is bad, nothing can or will ever, ever change. Yeah. I know too that anxiety lies really well. (laughs) It tells us that if we worry, we control things, which just leaves us in this constant state of tense, quivering concern with no control whatsoever. It's just this useless, nonstop quivering. Right. So, okay. So you and I need to remember these truths. There is no control. You can't see the future. And that's actually a really good thing because I think that's where hope lies, Hmm. not knowing what's coming. That means that there could be hope. The other idea I really love is Matt's view that it's not sentimental if it's true. His unabashed embrace of babies and puppies and Wilson Phillips songs, because, you know, those are the things that fill us up. They, they fill the well of the soul. <laughs> See, I'm embracing yeah. sentimentality. Yeah, and, I, and I'm singing in my head, hold on for one more day. Yeah, no. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, Matt says also that it's human nature to focus on the negative, which is of course true. Uh, And particularly for people with anxiety, if we don't make an effort to hold on to the positive, to look at the actual good that happens, and it does happen, then all of that gets lost in the negative. So it's really vital work and hard work 
to highlight the positive for ourselves. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. <laughs> okay. All, right. All right. Back to the interview. Next, we talked to Matt about his protagonist, Nora. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Nora. She is super smart. She's an athlete with Olympic potential. She's an incredibly talented natural musician, but none of those paths makes her happy. So when we cheer for Nora, and we definitely do, we're celebrating someone who chooses not to swing for the fences when in fact she has the power to hit the ball that far, right? Like she could be an Olympic athlete. And in fact, you say in the book, um, one of the really thought-provoking things you say in the book is maybe it wasn't the lack of achievements that had made her and her brother's parents unhappy. Maybe it was the expectation to achieve in the first place. Well, absolutely. I don't think we philosophize enough actually about how remarkable it is that we are alive and how we are alive on this planet in space and it's pretty amazing and we get you know we're a sentient life form and we can get to hang out with other human beings and dogs and great stuff and eat brilliant mexican food and we're not always thankful for this these everyday miracles and i think it's quite a modern phenomenon we feel a bit overloaded and we also feel like we should be living in a different way you you think you're miserable because you're an unpublished writer Mm-hmm. then you become a published writer and you're still miserable. And then you think, oh, I'm miserable because I'm not a best-selling successful writer. And then you get on a bestseller chart and you think, well, I'm still miserable. And then you think, well, okay, maybe maybe that wasn't the problem. <laughs> it's something else that I need to address. And the older you get and the more varied a life you live and you realize how much of yourself you're taking with you in each situation. And I realized this quite early on because I had my... Um, first breakdown, my big serious breakdown, very life-threatening breakdown in Spain, in sunshine, um, living in a beautiful villa, looking out over the Mediterranean Sea, living everyone's stereotypical postcard of serenity and, um, you know, Mediterranean bliss. And I was staring out at the view and it actually made me worse because I thought, well, this is beautiful and gorgeous. And I was feeling so horrendously bad in a state of continual panic attack and sleep deprivation and everything. The key moment in my recovery was going from someone who who felt like depression was happening to such an extent that it fundamentally was me. It wasn't an experience. It was me. There was no separation. So when I switched from thinking I am a depressive to thinking I am someone experiencing depression or I have depression... That was a fundamental shift, you know, like it doesn't matter how bad uh, the weather is or how bad the hurricane is. It can be life threatening. It can blow you off your feet. It can knock down your house, whatever. But there's at no point do you think you are the hurricane. You think you're the person within the storm who's experiencing it. And that's the case I got to with depression. It's not to belittle depression at all. It's to say it's a terrible thing, but it's a terrible thing that's happening to you. It's not you it still helps me to frame it as an experience rather than a permanent reality that's fundamentally my fault and unshifting and set in stone from. Yeah. I really like this point that the way we frame things, the way we decide to see them is likely our most powerful way to exercise some control. In the Midnight Library, Matt says it this way. In part, he's quoting Thoreau. Everything we experience is ultimately just our perception of it. 
it's not what you look at that matters. It's what you see. There's a connection to be made here to Buddhist philosophy, but I don't know enough about Buddhist philosophy to make it. <laughs> Everything good connects to Buddhist philosophy, I think, but I don't know anything about it either. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Yeah. But to go back to this idea of perception and belief, there's an incredible moment in the book where Nora is beginning to look at herself, or at least to consider to begin to look at herself in a different way. And Matt says, she imagined now what it would be like to accept herself completely Every mistake she has ever made, every mark on her body, every dream she hadn't reached or pain she had felt, every lust or longing she had suppressed, she imagined seeing herself as just another brilliant freak of nature, just another sentient animal trying their best. And in doing so, she imagined what it was like to be free. Can you imagine what it would feel like to practice such radical self-acceptance? No, I'm too <laughs> inadequate to actually imagine it. I know. I mean, not I know you are, but I know me too. <laughs> but let's try. Okay, I'll do my best, but not right now. Right now, we're turning back to the next part of the interview when we talk to Matt about philosophy. So Nora has a, a quotidian relationship with philosophers, with Thoreau and Hobbes. And this is one of the things I really enjoyed about the book too. It almost felt to me like she turns to their ideas in the same way that some people use self-help books. Do you think the world needs more philosophy majors? I do. I really am a fan of philosophy. You know, it's about doubt and it's about openness and openness to interpretation. It's about debating with people. And I feel like we've lost that. We certainly need more of it, say, on social media and things like Twitter, where people don't know how to debate anymore. We need Socrates to come along and sort of teach people how to have reasoned arguments that don't descend into insults. And actually can, you know, the ancient Greeks, the aim wasn't to actually argue with people to vent. It was to try and win people over. And we've lost even... The idea of even trying to win people on the different side of a political fence now, that just seems so futile and, and ridiculous. And it might help us to be a bit less judgmental sometimes. I think there's a tendency in modern internet culture that we think we know everything, that we're at the end of thought and our thoughts are the right ones and that there won't be a future age, 100 years, that judges pretty much all of us in the same wrong basket as Gen. So, yeah, I feel like sometimes we need a little less certainty and philosophy mm -hmm. can give us that. I agree. Totally down with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one last question because we know you have to go. Um, do you have any favorite stories about libraries or librarians? Not about librarians. I, I do like them as a species, but as individuals, I... I, I um, I don't have a particular favourite childhood one. I did used to go to my library in um, Newark-on-Trent, which was a tiny, small town, not like Newark, New Jersey, very small, 30,000 population in Nottinghamshire. And we didn't have anything culturally going on. We didn't have a bookshop. We didn't have a cinema. So we had a library in the centre of town. And my parents used to both work. My mum was a teacher. My dad was an architect working in London commuting back home and so I used to just go and hang out at the library and I've always liked libraries as a space because they're almost like secular churches you know they're spaces that don't demand anything from us they don't demand 
unless we're late with our book. They don't demand money from us. They're places where you can just go and just be. You know, we've talked a lot about being versus doing. And I think libraries are spaces where we can be and absorb and, yes, read or maybe do our homework or even just stare out of a window for a little while. And they're quiet, calm spaces. And we don't have too many of those in the world. Yeah, so... I'm all about libraries. And one thing I really, really value about American arts and culture versus Britain, because I know Americans can be a bit down on themselves sometimes about how like government doesn't support things or states doesn't support things, but libraries are so valued in America compared to in the UK. Like our libraries are closing, and this was pre-pandemic, you know, libraries closing everywhere. And Americans still properly um libraries are the center of uh, book culture you know you have library journal you have library conferences and all of that and i think that's great and it's so different to england actually huh i didn't realize that about england that's yeah, we used to be good with libraries, but yeah, the last 20, 30 years. And it's always the libraries in the communities that need them most, you know, places with no bookshops where they can't afford books and in deprived areas. Those libraries have been closing. It's nice to have one positive take on the state of priority given to books in the United States versus in Britain. Although it is heartbreaking to think of libraries closing anywhere, to think that we live in a world where that happens. But we can't end this interview of all interviews on a note of regret. No. (laughs) I like what Matt says in the Midnight Library about all kinds of sources of sadness. He says, it's so easy while trapped in just the one life to imagine that times of sadness or tragedy or failure or fear are a result of that particular existence that it's a byproduct of living a certain way rather than simply living. I mean, it would have made things a lot easier if we understood there was no way of living that can immunize you against sadness and that sadness is intrinsically part of the fabric of happiness. You can't have one without the other. Hmm. And I also want to add what a wise friend said to me just the other day, which is when we imagine lives we could have led or lives other people lead that seem so much better than ours, we don't get to cherry pick. So I don't get to say, I wish I was Michael Phelps, just not with the depression, you know? Yeah, <laughs> the, the point yeah. being that there are no perfect lives, but every life has its small, beautiful moments and unexpected, never could have seen that one coming developments that make it worth living. That's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I mean it. Yeah. And that is a note we will end on. So that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Matt at www.matthaig.com and on Twitter as at matthaig1. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie